Planet Fitness has branded itself the judgment-free zone. And when I hear that, I think if the religious leaders of Jesus' day could have had a Planet Fitness, they would have ran the Planet Fitness when they saw Jesus coming. Because Jesus, when it comes to the religious leaders of his day, is a walking judgment zone. It is absolutely amazing. I want to say it's a necessary evil, but I wouldn't say Jesus is evil. It's a necessary good because the religious leaders are phonies, because they're manipulating the people of God, because they're claiming to speak truth when they're speaking lies. And so even though it's unpleasant, and today is going to be unpleasant, because Jesus takes the gloves off and lets them have it, and it's judgment, 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 judgment. It's the most reoccurring word in our text. Remember, he does it ultimately for the good of his people so that we wouldn't be deceived, so that we wouldn't be misled, so that we wouldn't be spiritually abused. Remember to read all of the gospel account of Matthew's account in light of who Jesus is, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And so this morning what we're going to do is look at the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, and we're going to begin in verse 22 and work our way through till the end, and it is something else, let me tell you, okay? But again, I'm going to remind you, Jesus is doing this not because he's filled with rage or hatred. He's doing this because there are fake shepherds misleading and misguiding, and he needs to expose them for who they are. And he also will then have opportunity to explain more clearly who he is. And so I'm hoping you can put your tray table up, fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. And put your chair up because it, 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 it's a doozy. Uh, it's, it's an interesting text, um, let me tell you. So if you're just joining us, we're studying the gospel according to Matthew. We're in the 12th chapter, so this is just the next text. And next week we'll be in chapter 13. We're having a great time uh, learning about what a great Savior Jesus is. So let's go ahead and jump in as we um, see Jesus in action, beginning in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And by now, we all know that the answer is what? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. From chapter 1, verse 1, back to the genealogy, he's going to be the son of David. That is to say, the, the, the ultimate David. That is to say, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king. Uh, one who is not oppressive and manipulative of his people, but one who is a kind, gracious, good shepherd king who will, as a king should, protect his people, provide for his people, care for his people, not in a selfish way, but in a way that is good for them. That's what Messiah is supposed to be. Son of David is supposed to be just that very kind of king. And so they're asking the right question, but we know by now that's actually the right answer. And we know from other studies, we won't get into it today, but Messianic prophecy uh, would say that he'll come and he will bring freedom from oppression That means uh, sin and all of its effects, including sickness, including death, including all of those things. 
That's why Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 in the prophecy says, The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. He is that one. He's showing, he's proving that he is indeed the one who frees people from oppression, all different kinds, from satanic to physical. He is the one we've been waiting for. He is the ultimate son of David. So they asked the right question. It's a great question. And we know that the answer is yes. But now here comes a different response. So that's, that's good. That's positive. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> okay. Hope you're uplifted because here we go. Scrap time. Okay. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So you see, power is undeniable. And if the power is undeniable, supernatural, and it doesn't fit our narrative, what do we do? We spin it. And that's what they're doing. We have to answer for this somehow. In my, in my notes, I wrote, people are amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing what we do sometimes. Verse 25 says, knowing their thoughts, the supernatural one does, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And it's going to be judge, 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 judge. Here's the first time he says it. So you see what's happening. They have bad theology, and he's exposed their bad theology. And they have substandard, subpar logic. Doesn't even make sense. Wouldn't make sense if you're Jesus to cast out demons by the power of demons. That's nonsense. And not only that, they, they, they were just quick to condemn him, and they weren't thinking about the trouble it would get them in because they themselves have taught their sons, those under their control and influence, to be against the demonic. Okay? And so it doesn't even make sense of their own argument. They would agree in principle in a different context that we want to exercise demons if we can. We want to be against the demonic. And so here, when they accuse Jesus of what they're accusing him of, it, it doesn't even make sense. Don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe kind of thing. And this is a classic case in point of that kind of thinking. They're guilty by their own standards. And then a wonderful, wonderful verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God, and we're going to see it is, and we have seen it is, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this negative Conflict gives me, Jesus, an opportunity to say, but if this is truly from the Spirit of God, you know what's happened? And usually in Matthew's Gospel account, the kingdom is spoken of as future. And ultimately it will be. But since the king is on earth doing kingly things, in a certain sense, the kingdom is present. And so if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then guess what? The kingdom of God is upon you. And in any other conversation... 
the religious leaders would have said, that's what we're longing for. Oh, Messiah to come. Oh, the kingdom to come so that we wouldn't be oppressed by our enemies so that we could have safety and restoration. And that would be the kind of thing they, they say and they tell the people they're waiting for. But when reality is toe-to-toe with them, it doesn't fit what they're up to in their agenda for whatever reason. And they say, no. They say, no. And Jesus is exposing them. Verse 29 says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may may plunder his house. So in the flow and in the context, the strong man would be someone who's demonic. I'd be in good company to say, it's a title for Satan, the strong man. So the logic of Jesus here is he's been opposing Satan again and again and again and freeing people of satanic oppression. And so he's proving that he has the power to do what no one else has the power to do, and that would be to bind the strong man. And if you can bind the strong man who is an oppressor, there's freedom for the people. They're no longer oppressed. So that's the logic of things in the flow of things. Jesus has been showing himself to be the one who binds Satan, the strong man. He has bound the strong man. Think of his temptation. He overcomes the temptation back in chapter 4. Think of all the exorcisms, freeing people. Jesus has proven that he's on the right side and he and he alone has the power to bind the strong man. The Reformation Study Bible has a great note here. I quoted it last week, so why not do it two weeks in a row? By his victory over Satan in the wilderness, chapter 3, chapter 4, and exorcisms of demons, Jesus demonstrates that he has bound the strong man and that Satan is powerless to prevent the coming of the kingdom. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) I'm him. I'm him, Jesus is saying. To be opposing me is spiritual insanity. And think of the fact that There would have been people listening to this. So they esteem the Pharisees as the leader shepherds for the good of the people because they're waiting for the kingdom and the Messiah. And Jesus is making it clear that they're fraudulent. Okay, there's that saying, never meet your heroes. Maybe we should say, always meet your heroes. Always meet your heroes, especially when Jesus has a comment or two to be made about their ethics. Ultimately, he and he alone is the one to be trusted. And he's making that clear here. I hope that encourages you and helps you even though it comes in a harsh package. Only Jesus can stop the satanic forces. He says it there. I love it. First binds the strong man. Satan binding by Jesus. I have so many interesting asides I could take us down and dialoguing about that but I won't today. Verse 30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, think of yourself as as an on-listener, an onlooker. 
And Jesus is exposing the fraudulent nature of these shepherds, the Pharisees. Because they're against Jesus. And if they're, uh, they're, they're not for Jesus, and if they're not for Jesus, then they're against Jesus. And what's Jesus up to? Jesus is up to good, freeing people from oppression. So if they're not with Jesus and freeing people from oppression by being opposed to Satan, then he's saying, then they're against me. Which is a fascinating way, a fascinating way to put it. Indifference doesn't work. And then he goes on to say something similar in parallel when he says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. The gathering word actually comes from um, the world of shepherding. Shepherds gather their sheep. So their sheep go astray, their sheep wander, and they're in danger uh, for their lives. Uh, They're not cared for, they're not provided for. And so shepherds are always gathering sheep protecting sheep, providing for sheep. And Jesus says, if you're not with me in gathering the sheep for their good, then what you're actually up to, regardless of what you clown Pharisees claim, you're about scattering sheep, putting them in danger. You claim to be for them, but you're actually showing, since you're not with me, you're actually against them. You're actually against them, which would be the unthinkable, which would be contrary to what the Pharisees would claim. As I like to say so often, I wish I didn't have to say it, but I say so often, there's a reason why they killed Jesus. But I'm going to remind you, he's doing this for the people's good, and he's doing it ultimately for our good, and so we're thankful that he's doing these things. What people do with Jesus is quite a revelation. We could pause for a moment and say... Regardless, even today, if, uh, if someone claims to be for the good of people, maybe for the good of people spiritually, if they're not with Jesus as the one who can bind the strong man, the one who can save his people from their sins, they can claim to be for people's good. But the fact of the, fact of the matter is Jesus says they're not. They're not. This is a pretty exclusive kind of claim from Jesus. 31 says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And I, I want to stop there because, because, again, I kind of want some more good news. That's a great statement. He's not making light of sin and blasphemy, but there is forgiveness through atonement. And so I do, I do, I know we're, we're, we're stopping too soon, but I do love and appreciate the fact that in Christ there is forgiveness and that there, there, there is forgiveness from sin and blasphemy. Thankful. But it's not for those who reject him. Blasphemy is abusive speech of any kind, but in a religious context, it's when you say lies about God. You say things that aren't true about God or you deny things that are true about God. Then in verse 31, if you look there with me, it says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, title for Messiah, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there is forgiveness, striking statement. But there is no forgiveness for others, striking statement in the negative. What does this mean? Inquiring minds want to know. It's one of the most often asked questions because now Jesus is talking about the unpardonable sin. 
What is the unpardonable sin? What is all of that about? Well, for starters, it's not criticizing the charismatic movement, though they like to use these verses for that because you speak against the Spirit. What, what is it? Well, it, the Apostle Paul blasphemed against Jesus according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and yet he was shown grace and mercy. He explains he was shown grace and mercy because though he blasphemed, he spoke lies about God, he was forgiven because he spoke in ignorance. He didn't really understand. He didn't really understand all that Jesus had done and all that he was, and so there was repentance, and so he experienced forgiveness. Again, it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So then what, what is it? By way of preview, just to, to, to explain the whole, first of all, in good company, I would say that what it is, is to see Jesus, to witness Jesus, do all the things that he does as they did, and to conclude the exact opposite of what reality is. To see Jesus raise the dead, to see Jesus uh, free people from oppression, to see Jesus do all the things that the Messiah would do, to witness it happen, and to conclude that he's the devil or empowered by the devil. If that's your conclusion, having seen it all, you're not acting ignorantly in unbelief, you're fully informed and you're rejecting him. And if that's the case, there is no forgiveness. These guys are different from the Apostle Paul even. Let me help you put the pieces together a little bit and not take my word for it. Back in chapter 12, verse 18, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 42 regarding Messiah. And it says in verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. We looked at this last time. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Similar things are said in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. There's the the unique coming of the deliverer of the people of God, the ultimate son of David, the Messiah, the king, and he will be uniquely empowered by the Spirit, uniquely anointed by the Spirit as the Messiah. That was earlier in chapter 12, quoting Isaiah chapter 42. Jesus is that one who is uniquely empowered by the Spirit, uniquely anointed by the Spirit to be the one. And so when it's blasphemy against the Spirit, it's speaking lies about Jesus as not being the King, not being the One, not being the special, ultimate deliverer, ultimate Son of David. Lying against the Spirit's blessing upon the Son to be the Messiah. To put it in other words, to witness this happening, even in the binding of the strong man and bringing people deliverance by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said in verse 28, and to conclude that the work of the Spirit is in actuality the work of the demonic is to be without forgiveness. Dennis Johnson, a very helpful author, writes this in Table Talk magazine. Some of you subscribe to that. In the face of indisputable evidence that in Jesus God's Spirit was establishing God's kingdom and defeating Satan's, they hardened their hearts to a point of no return. I'm in good company, not universal agreement, but in good company in saying, blasphemy against the Spirit, 
seeing, eyewitnessing, earwitnessing, and concluding that he is empowered by demons, satanic. That begs the question, can it be committed today? Well, strictly speaking, I would say no. I would say no. In principle, if you deny Christ to the very end and breathe your last breath, you won't be forgiven. But it's apples to oranges, not apples to apples. And I do like to tell people, Christians who struggle with this, and they try to get their mind around it, and they say, well, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'm terrified that I've committed the unpardonable sin. First of all, I don't think you have. And where I would turn you to is the end of chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and promise, I will give you rest. You've committed many sins, I will agree. We all have. Where do you go to get your sin problem solved? You turn to Jesus, who says, I will give you rest. No one who has rested in Christ has committed the unpardonable sin. The answer ultimately is to turn to Christ. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to make light of this. It's horrific. It's terrible. There's a reason why it's unpardonable. To see it all there with your own eyes in time and space history and to act in unbelief and say he's demonic is utterly awful. No no forgiveness. Well, I hope you now have more questions than answers. (laughs) I actually don't. I actually don't hope that. I hope it helps you. But it does help us to see just how off-kilter and off-track these religious leaders were. And I remind you, they would have said they're Bible believers. They would have been inerrantists. They would have believed in the inspiration of Scripture. They would have believed in the infallibility of Scripture. They would have believed all the right things about the Scripture. The problem is they didn't understand the message of Scripture. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Meet your heroes. And look to Christ who who alone has the power to bind Satan and bring freedom from oppression. Now in verse 33, let's remember he's still talking about their speech. With their mouths they said he's of Beelzebul. And Jesus is going to continue to dismantle their speech. So keep that in mind in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You guys claim to be good to represent God, but you're such bad actors. This is just confusing. This is just confusing. let's, Let's cut through the irrationality. Where he's headed with this is, you're bad. So you might as well just talk bad because you are bad. Again, think of onlisteners and onlookers as you think about what's happening here. They say bad things that Jesus is demonic. That means they are, in fact, bad. In other words, regardless of how they look. Think about that for just a moment when you, you hear and see people who seem so nice and seem so sweet and seem so earnest. And they say lies about God. Jesus is giving us some help here. That would have been the Pharisees. They were the highly esteemed ones. But when you tell lies about Jesus, you're a bad actor 
regardless. So, in, in other words, I could stand before you as seemingly perfect. Huh. I could have a million dollar smile. I don't. I could have perfect hair, but I'm losing it. I could have a perfect physique, but I don't. I, I could be well dressed, but I'm not. <laughs> you get the idea. The package that it's coming from, in this case, was deceptive. Everything looked right but they said wrong things about Jesus and Jesus is saying, therefore, regardless of how you look, you're bad. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Then verse 34 comes. I hope you're ready for this one. You brood of vipers. You group of poisonous asps. You group of poisonous snakes, you speak poison, probably even using that on purpose. But notice, he's not just saying you group of poisonous, dangerous snakes posing as shepherds. He's saying brood of vipers, you come from a family of snakes. Not only is he insulting them, he's insulting their families and their parents and their heritage. The very people who would have said, we're sons and daughters of Abraham. We are of the line of David. And Jesus says, you're bad and your history is bad. Yikes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Based upon what you've been saying about me, we know what your heart's like. For the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure, that's kind of an odd way to put things, evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, emphasis is on judgment again, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now think about that for a second. He's speaking in principle. Every careless word you'll give an account for. But they've not only spoken careless words, they've spoken the most egregious, awful words, and that is, Jesus is satanic. And so you're going to be busted on judgment day for that, no doubt, regarding what you say about Jesus. 37 says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And clearly he's saying you will be condemned on that day because of what you said about Jesus. Now, what do you... How about, let, I have a question for you. What do you do after you've called people evil, poisonous snakes? You and your mother and father. And what do you do, what do, you do next? Well, if you're Jesus, you further insult them and expose them and tell them that they're worse than pagans. And if you're Jesus, you not only do that once, you do it twice. <laughs> So, here we go. Let's keep reading. Then, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Both Mark and Luke tell us that they're testing him. They're, they're, they're going, this is not sincere. There's been, there have been enough miracles. There's been enough evidence. There's been enough to see. And they say, show us another one. But he answered them in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Let's keep going, then we'll come back to that. The men of Nineveh will rise up at, ju- at the judgment. The men of Nineveh, th- those are the pagans. They're going to rise up at judgment, okay? At the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember he said in chapter uh, 12, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. He's continuing on with that. Something greater than Jonah is here. And so the pagan Ninevites that you look down on just as Jonah did will rise up and testify against you on judgment day. I mean, that, it's a stinger. If you want to insult these Jewish leaders, just have them judged by Gentiles, by the otherwise seemingly godless. Jesus is really pushing it here to show just how corrupt and perverse these guys are. Even the Ninevites are going to pronounce condemnation upon your heads at Judgment Day. Wow. Now, I do want to encourage you to go back to that section about three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish because it's, it's fascinating. That's the sign that's offered in verse 40. Just as, so the Son of Man, okay, that's a title for Messiah, the Messiah who will rule and reign forever, okay, based upon Daniel, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, that, that's puzzling. Think about how puzzling it is. The Messiah, the one who will rule and reign forever, free his people from their sins and deliver them from oppression, protect them, care for them, he will die? And he'll stay dead for three days? Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, that's, that's pretty baffling. Why? Well, there are some parallels and there are some differences. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days because of his rebellion. Jesus is not dead for three days because of his rebellion, although he is a representative acting on behalf of rebellious people as a substitute. But notice the positive. So it seems weird that the Messiah would die if you don't know the big picture. But do notice the positive. He won't stay dead because it's only three days. He will be resurrected. He will be resurrected. And that's a sign. It's a sign for believers. He's conquered sin and death and the grave. He's the righteous one. But it's also a sign to unbelievers in light of Acts 17. Resurrection proves coming judgment because he's the judge as Messiah. And so Jesus says, here's the sign for you. Jonah's the sign. Then in verse, oh, we've already read verse 41. I do love it too. I hope you noticed. And if not, I'll point it out to you. At the end there in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Why do you suppose he didn't say someone greater than Jonah is here? I think he says something is greater on purpose. The reason something is greater because someone is greater. And the someone is going to do the something. Because he's going to do all kinds of things as Messiah. Free, deliver, provide, take care of, rule and reign forever. Something, the kingdom, because of the king, is greater. And it's here now. You're tasting it. You're seeing it. You're experiencing a, 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 an inbreaking of it, a preview of what is to come. 
Again, what's better than one insult? Um, Maybe two. So then verse 42 comes. uh, The queen of the south. That would be the queen of Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of the south, not Teresa Mendoza from a modern show. Um, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. Oh, here's another Gentile, another pagan. What an insult this is to the Jews. Rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth. Again, 1 Kings chapter 10. She goes from what is now Yemen, meaning far away. She's drawn, even at great cost and great time, to come and see what God has done in and through Solomon from 1 Kings. And so the argument that, for, that Jesus is making here, even pagans at times are drawn to the revelation of God and in awe of the revelation of God and will go at great cost to witness the revelation of God. So even a pagan like the Queen of Sheba will stand in judgment of you one day. Hey, right? Wow. to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, we're not quite through. Um, Jesus is going to further confront these individuals for being true to themselves, evil. Maybe we should take just a breath before verse 43. What do you guys think? Should I use this as my candidating sermon at the next church I go to? (laughs) It's such a feel-good sermon. Maybe I should, because then I'll find out if they really want me to come or not. I I like these kinds of passages, and I don't like these kind of passages. I know they're hard-hitting, but I I know we're prone to wonder, even as we sang this morning, and we're prone to create our own personal Jesus, who's made in our image according to our likeness, and he's very manageable. Um, But that's a mistake. It's, it's good for our hearts and our souls to say, oh, wow, I don't believe I would have said that, <laughs> right? And, and to remember he's doing all that he's doing, including these harsh words, because he loves his people and he came to save them from their sins and all of its effects, including those who would be imposter manipulators who are abusive to his people. And so he's the champion. The right man is on our side, to quote Martin Luther, the man of God's own choosing. And so this is good. This is positive. Even if it maybe unsettles our... I'm not even going to say it. I'm going to get myself in trouble. It's it's shocking to us. Then it says sensibilities. That's a nice word. It's unsettling to our sensibilities. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. See, that's positive. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be it, it, excuse me, so also will it be with this evil generation. So he goes from talking about a person because it's an illustration to talking about a generation and he talks about evil and then he says worse. So we go from evil to worser evil. Okay? For this generation. 
So he uses the illustration of what happens. So if someone has a demon uh, who leaves, if nothing is filled in the void that's good, the demon comes back with friends and it's stronger than ever to the point where it's worse evil. It's even worse. So what do we make of that? In the flow of things, here's what I would make of it. I've come, Jesus is saying. I've been here and I've done good things. I've done good things for this generation. I've freed the oppressed. I've raised the dead. I've healed people. I've shown myself to be who I am. And by and large, this generation is rejecting me. So what I want you to know is the intent. Things are about to get worse for you, Israel. Things are about to get more evil. Temporary blessings come. You've rejected me. It's going to get worse. It's very grim. Verse 46 says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Two things. If you read it negatively, and I think you have permission to do that, he's saying no to his own family. We do know in other, gospel, on other, in other gospel accounts that at one point in time his brothers were not believing in him. That's John chapter 7 verse 5. And on another occasion, family and friends, Mark chapter 3, uh, wanted to have him committed. Okay? They wanted him to get confined to the loony bin. They thought he was out of his mind. If that's still what's going on here, I don't know for sure if it is, but if that's the spirit of what's going on here, he's definitely giving them the stiff arm. Okay? They want to interrupt him and stop him from getting himself into any further hot water. And he's saying, no. No. I'm about my father's business. But to put it positively, and let's definitely go there, he's raising his disciples up to the level of the closest people to him. Family status. Okay? And this is a great positive. If you trust in Jesus, which is another way of saying, if you do the will of the Father, because the Father says, listen to my Son, ultimately doing the will of the Father is believing in the Son, the Messiah who binds the strong man. Ultimately, those who do the will of the Father are believers. So if you come to believe in Jesus, you rest in Him as your provider, deliverer, protector. You're equal to mother brothers, sisters. In other words, you can't get closer. You can't have a closer relationship with him. And so I would definitely emphasize it in the positive, at least here. It's promissory. It's positive. It's good. It's heartwarming. And I don't think it's a mistake that this section comes after that hardcore, in-your-face, lambasting judgment section. Because now, heavy-hearted tired disciples, followers, having 
seen Pharisees exposed as fraudulent can trust in Jesus and know that they have the closest relationship that you could possibly have with Him, the one and only one who has the power to defeat Satan and bring freedom. It's a good ending. I thought it was awkward at first. I almost didn't include it at first, but I think it's actually good and important that God's wis- in God's wisdom, it's actually right there. We can end, for now at least, on a positive. You can't trust these Pharisees But you can trust in Jesus. And if you are trusting in Him, it doesn't get any better. You can't get any closer. Our world is seemingly more and more filled with people saying that good is bad. And that bad is good. It's bizarro world. But I want to remind you that this isn't anything new. And they did it to the one who is the good one. And he spoke up and brought clarity. And so we want to attach ourselves to him and find freedom from confusion and oppression in the one who said, I am the way and the truth and no one comes to the Father but by me. So be blessed by that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you for his boldness and his courage. Thank you that he is committed to loving us even to the very end. We're grateful. We're grateful that we have a bold Savior, a caring and compassionate Savior, a strong Savior who is worthy of our trust and worthy of our worship as we prepare to eat and drink in remembrance of Him as He instructed us, supernaturally work by the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. We know we're just eating bread and drinking juice, but we also know that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. So use this observance. Use what we do here to bring spiritual strength that we might live for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.